0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Tech Trends podcast. I am Benjamin Moses and
1: I am AMT's te- manufacturing technology analyst Stephen Lamarca. <laughs> I forgot my title too. I'm the director of You're manufacturing. the director of tech of <laughs> oh, manufacturing <no. laughs> technology.
0: Hello everybody. Uh so how was your how was your week, Steve?
1: My week was great. My uh you know I'll, I'll I'll uh it's been going great so far. Yeah. Um last week was great. Um so great. I'll great, get into great. the rest of it on <laughs> uh, uh, any negatives and even the the highlights uh, about my weekend uh, yeah. when we get to the test bed. But okay, good. Everything's good and yeah. gravy.
0: I had some trials and tribulations. First, when I was doing the show notes, I was going to talk
1: about lubrication, but I put lubration. Lubration. I, I don't know. And I love that on your show notes, it says lubration man. <laughs> and at first, I was like, okay, this is great. I'm going to learn about libration, whatever yeah. lubration <laughs> Who is. Who knows what that is? Um... But now that, like, I learned that, no, it was a typo for lubrication. And you wrote in the show notes, lubrication, man, I have no idea what this is about. I have no idea where this is going to (laughs) go.
0: Well, what I do want to talk about was the uh, concern I have about consumerism getting into industrial tools. Okay. So I was fighting my sprinkler system again. Uh, So (laughs) the front lawn's looking great. I'm meeting the HOA rules. There's no weeds. It's kind of green. There's one patch on the side that has its own uh, timer. So I've got a uh, three-port timer and then a single-port uh, single timer. And for some reason, that grass is turning green, uh, turning brown. I'm like, all right, whatever. I guess something's wrong with the timer again. If you look at the timer, the battery's dead, which really annoys me, by the way. There's a big push to make everything standalone, wireless, independent, yeah. which is completely useless. It's a sprinkler system. I have to run hoses to it. Why can't I just run a power, system, power plug to it? I would never have to change batteries. I don't need a wireless uh, timer system. I have to run hoses. Let me connect it with the power.
1: Yeah, wh- You know, with exception to that article you touched on a couple episodes ago of like operators having a, a mobile workstation yeah. go from machine to machine with right. like, you know, a stack of car batteries yeah. wired up to power their station. It needs to be mobile that needs to change. be mobile but yeah. i don't see like man we're we're pushing what needs to be wireless <laughs> yeah too it's, far it's it's like you know it's like, like 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 there's there's stuff that doesn't need to be if no. it has hoses there's no need do, for there's no need for <laughs> a, a wireless system yeah
0: um and the the part that really irritated me was the sensitivity uh, of this unit to the battery so mm-hmm. i have a bunch of rechargeable batteries i think that's more uh, green or uh, environmentally friendly than constantly using sure. alkaline batteries I throw away. So I popped in some uh, rechargeable batteries, and then uh, it looked like it was fine. Uh, realized a couple of days later, the grass turned more brown. It's like, well, oh, the batteries must be dead again. This is weird. I put in fresh batteries. Yeah. So I took another set of rechargeable batteries, put that in, and I realized right away that uh, it recognized the batteries is dead. Like, this can't be right. It
1: doesn't like the rechargeable batteries.
0: I slapped a couple of alkaline batteries in, and it worked. I was like, why would this happen? That's so
1: lame. You I know, almost
0: threw it across to my neighbor's house.
1: No, because you're trying to implement like proper, like industrial automation in your home setting. Trying to, and then they want battery. They want a wireless system with a hose. <laughs> <laughs> like it's irritating, and it's it's you know, there's uh, this this makes me think of like the 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 hi fi audio industry, right? You know, um, there's sound engineers at Sennheiser, at Shore, at you know, Audio Technica, that put years, like, decades of development in some of their, like, high-end headphones. Yep. And then consumers are like, well, I want this to be Bluetooth. <laughs> you know, I'm going I'm to watch, I'm going to listen to music on YouTube, <laughs> but I want the very best headphones you can buy. The lowest bit rate you can achieve. <laughs> They're crying. Yeah. You know. it's, it's a shame. <sighs> All right. All right,
0: that's enough. That's enough complaint. Well, tell me about the test bed, man. Things the, are going well with the test bed. The I test
1: think. bed? Okay. So... Before I get into the failure on the test bed, let me talk about the wins first. Yeah. So I restarted cutting brass. You know, I want to, I want to make – turn these brass plate blanks um, into watch dials. Right. And the last time I tried to do it, I, I ended up getting like the surface of the brass that I was milling. When I was trying to put a, a design into the surface of the brass – the brass got really gummy. It sure. looked like it was pilling and it, there were micro burrs everywhere that okay. were like sticking up and it looked really gross. And it's was right. like, wow, no Swiss watch manufacturer would ever have anything like this. And you know, a, a, a product right. that they were selling. Um, so I was like, okay, I, I found out later that I'm, I'm running at the wrong feed rate. Okay. Um, did a quick online, uh, doing a quick Google search, found that oh, cutting brass is similar to cutting aluminum, and you should be running um, ten to twelve thousand RPM. And so I was like, oh man, I screwed up by cutting this brass plate the last time at eighty five hundred RPM, right. which is the feet or the, the the spindle speed that I use cutting Delrin, right. and works great with Delrin. Brass needs to be at ten thousand, which is the pocket NC's we'll max. Yep. Um so I go back and realize I also see that when I was cutting the brass the last time it was uneven so I needed to redo my work holding too yeah. found out that you know if if you're only cutting theoretically one fixture you can't undo the fixture to take it out to show people what you the cuts <laughs> you've made so far and then put it back you're defeating the purpose of one fix so I learned right. the hard way that you know, once the work piece is in the work holding, sure, leave it alone. Right. Don't take it out. Yep. Then you, you you're ru- if you take it out, you're ruining the point of having one fixture.
0: Realistically, if you're taking it out, you start have to start from scratch on setting up that fixture. Exactly. And, 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 and I learned it. that the hard yeah. way.
1: Yeah, It's never bitten me in the butt before, and it really it I learned it the hard way this time. Yep. So one fixture, one fixture only, please. One fixture, Vasilia. <laughs> um but uh, the, every, that was the that was a a win. The next big win was getting the brass plate to stick to the Delrin workholding. Sure. Um, I mill the little pocket, the little yeah, the little pocket that the brass plate sets in. I'm last time I milled it perfectly, so it like snaps in, but it's not enough to keep it in. Right. Um. So this time I milled these uh, adhesive channels, these circular adhesive channels, so when I go to put an adhesive on the Delrin yep. um, and then I squish the uh, brass plate down onto it um, to, to hold the brass plate onto the Delrin, right. there's no high spot on the brass plate because those channels provide a place for the adhesive to expand and okay. uniformly cover the contact patch cool. uh, between the brass and the Delrin. And that worked brilliantly. Yep. Like I'm just the first thing, you know, don't touch the work holding. Second thing is these <laughs> adhesive channels. I'm just getting two wins back to back. Well, just to recap,
0: I mean, the reason for that is because you're face milling. You're cutting the face yes, of that plate. Exactly. The brass plate. And you can't really cover it because you're going to trim the edges off also. And you're basically going to be machining from edge to edge on that circular plate. Yes. Okay, good.
1: Um, And then the next thing is to, to even get more particular and specific, there's the... In the vice, which is when when it's the machine is oriented how it's going to be cut, the vice is horizontal, and the Delrin is – the Delrin workholding, the soft jaw, is being gripped by the vice uh, at a 45-degree angle. So the Delrin is actually – instead of – it's square piece, right? Um, but it's being held diagonal at a 45-degree angle, so it looks like a diamond. Sure. The brass plate is being held by that horizontal again. Yeah. So you have the corners of the brass plate overhanging off of the delrin a little bit. Right. So to minimize vibration and any um, harmonics, uh, any sort of chatter whatsoever, whatsoever, to minimize that, but still be able to remove the brass plate when it's done, yep. um, I trimmed those tabs. I trimmed okay. the corners overhanging into little neat little tabs yep. so I have something to grip to rip off the brass plate when the time comes, um, but also to minimize any chatter that I get when okay. cutting just the plate and there's no Delrin behind it. Because right.
0: um, any type of overhang on, even if it's a thicker part, those things just vibrate and resonate. Mm-hmm. Well, generally it's okay. Operators have a hell of a time with Because there was a couple of times in Needon when I was machining, um, basically sh- uh, form sheet metal. Uh, so we would form it and then trim the extra materials. It was a large plate. Right. I had a ton of extra material because it was the first time I was forming, so I didn't know what to do. Right. So I had a ton of extra material. And all we had to do was rec- do a rectangular pattern, uh, just trim all the extra material. And the trim section was just overhanging over the fixture. And the next day, the operator was like, we can't run the part again. I was like, what, did it break? Did it happen? No, it was just too loud. <laughs> yeah. It, it was just resonating. And I get was, that. Like I, I, I warned
1: IT when I cut the brass yesterday that this is going to get loud. Yeah. This, yeah. And I apologize in advance. I don't apologize. Um, Jesse's loud enough. But, to, <laughs> but anyway, so that was a nice little win. Make, the tabs really helped. Like trimming Good. those tabs down really helped chatter. It was yeah. still loud, but at least it wasn't it wasn't like like grunting and bucking. It wasn't wop wah, wah, wah. wah. It was, <laughs> instead it was just a loud, really loud hum. Okay, good. It was yeah. Loud hum is the best way to describe it. Um so this this I did the cutting, the the face milling yesterday, trying to get a nice surface finish, and it got pilly again. It wasn't nearly as pilly and 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 burred up and gummy sure as it was last time. But, you know, and it just kind of let me down. It was it was a fail at the end of the day because right. uh, it's just it's not finished quality. Sure. sure. Um, so and Sam Steele actually showed up yesterday and he was okay. like, oh, well, you know, we we cut uh, at, at my uh, the the shop that I work in. Um, we actually do a little bit of we, we work all with brass a little bit. Right. And we don't mill it. And I'm like, really, you what don't do mill do? it at all. Yeah, we've never had good luck milling it. We'll turn we can turn it in a lathe. <laughs> oh, sure. And in a lathe it works okay. Right. But but milling it just, you know, there's we, we, we've never figured it out. And, okay. And um well we
0: we're face milling too, so yeah. Shoulder milling could be a little different. It, shoulder or... mill
1: and shoulder milling for me, I, that's how I trim I I trimmed yeah. the tabs. Yeah. I used the shoulder of a sixteenth inch ball end mill. Right. So the ball really right. didn't matter at all. It could have been a square for all that matters. I just using the shoulder yep. to essentially cut it to shear it. And that worked brilliantly right. i got a beautiful edge on that Good. um but so over the weekend and this is still test bed related i promise over the weekend i went to pennsylvania two hour drive from here um went into uh just outside of lancaster pennsylvania to rgm amish country it's amish country yep. um rgm is one of two actual still in in order um us watchmakers so this is like that make every part of the watch in-house so they don't assembly they do they don't buy swiss parts and then assemble it here like cough cough shinola um (laughs) they actually the watch is entirely made in the u.s okay um the only other country or the only other company that does that and i say the only in still in working order no these aren't old like rgm isn't an old company okay like um Hamilton and Elgin or Elgin those Elgins like a Chinese company now sure. and um Hamilton is now owned by Swatch Group in okay. Switzerland so they're not they that's not US based anymore right. RGM is trying to uh, try Is bringing watchmaking back to the U.S., which is really cool. So they know how to cut brass, and that's one of the reasons why I went up there. Okay. Um, But the other company is Weiss Watches, and they're somewhere in California. And that guy was trained in uh, Switzerland, so he knows his stuff. Cool. Um, But anyway, go to RGM, and it was a great experience. A lot of... I learned a lot. I got to see a lot of, you know, manufacturing technology there. They actually have a 3D printer. Nice. Uh, It doesn't touch the watches at all, but (laughs) they do mock-ups on it, and Mm -hmm. they do some work holding with the 3D printer, and they made a really cool carbon fiber 3D printed loop that I have. That's cool. Uh, I made sure to take one home. But um, anyway, when I was talking with their manufacturing engineer, which they actually do have two CNCs on site, um, two CNC mills, um I talked to their manufacturing engineer. a really cool guy. Ryan Hufford, I believe his name was. Anyway, he um I asked him when when you cut brass, um what what feeds and speeds do you use? I need help here. Sure. I want to make sure I don't scrap another piece which I ended up doing. Um and he's like, Oh, our machines, when we're cutting brass, they don't venture below twenty thousand RPM. <laughs> so that's already double what the Pocket N C can do yeah. and I'm screwed. Ah, that's all right. um, And, and then probably- I was like, All right, just for you know, just for you know uh, f- just for kicks, what feed rate do you run at twenty thousand RPM right. when cutting brass? And he's like, We cut one millimeter a minute. <laughs> <laughs> real slow. That is. We go real slow. And I'm like, oh my God. So even if I slow down as far, it's gonna take a day to do like one line, <laughs> one pass yeah. on the brass.
0: And just to mention the pocket sneak can go up to twenty thousand RPMs with the version two.
1: With the version two, it can go up to fifty thousand, but you need a compressed air system. Yeah, it's using a
0: um air accelerator to um speed up the speed which normal. So it's not electrically driven so it's uh accelerated through uh, which i'm sorry for all intents
1: and purposes i love you pocket nc but if you need an air compressor to ru- run it it's no longer a desktop cnc machine uh i'll it's debate work- you on that it's it's tabletop <laughs> maybe but not a desk okay i got you desk- t- we'll desktop makes tabletop. it implies office sure you know? Sure. it's
0: a sound issue that you have yeah okay um
1: that's good but, but so, yeah, that, that's where I made it with the test bed. Awesome. It was, it was, other than the test bed, it was a great trip to RGM. They learned yeah. a lot, got I to fulfill of some of my passions. Good. Uh, I, I photo dumped on our uh, AMT Slack channel, Which and are, I got yelled at for that. The HR manager um, did not approve. They did not like all the pictures that I took.
0: <laughs> well, it was the notifications they were getting on the weekend. That was the problem.
1: <laughs> I mean, who has their Slack notifications on on the weekend? I,
0: I mean, know. I got notified, but then I silenced it after. <laughs> I, I know how to work
1: technology. You know how to do it. All right.
0: I want to get into this article from Canadian Metalworking, my favorite, second favorite country in the world. Dude, they do such. They it's
1: such a good uh, publication. I know we're an American association, but Canadian Metalworking is such an amazing website and publication.
0: I'm getting a lot of uh, Canadian uh, references on YouTube because I watch uh, Linus Tech Tips. Oh my
1: god! I don't know what that guy. That that guy I can't stand.
0: So uh, what they're talking about are design, uh, design for effective manufacturing. They're getting to the concept of DFM, design for manufacturing.
1: Steve, okay. do you know what DFM is? Tell me what DFM is. Good. I should know what it is. Nah,
0: not really. So uh, okay. the concept of design manufacturing, design for manufacturing, is embedding best practices and knowledge about the manufacturing process early in the design phase. So, for example, if I'm making a um, uh, a, a bushing or a cylinder that I need to press into like an axle or something like that. I'm going to machine the cylinder.
1: So, so is this like the cam?
0: Oh, we didn't get there. No, yet. not even there yet. So okay. I'm a design engineer. I'm saying, okay, I've got to press fit this uh, cylinder into this housing, but I got to machine it. So what are some best practices about machining that I can put into the design itself? For example, the radius of any edges, okay. uh, surface finishes, length tolerancing, uh, diametrical, tolerancing, all those features uh, have best practices from a manufacturing house. If, I, if I'm a design make company, then my manufacturing facility, uh, I'm including that. So like tolerancing. Okay. What, what, what are best practices for tolerance? So you want a tolerance that you can accept in the design world, but also something I can manufacture. So the second part comes from the manufacturing group. But what they're doing is they're embedding that early in the design phase. Yeah. So... Once they do the design, they say, which tolerance band do I need? And then as they ship it into manufacturing, there's not really a, a, an issue going into manufacturing so they've embedded as much as they can.
1: Yeah. Pre-processing, if you would? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's a good way to think of it. Pre-processing. Before getting into manufacturing, they're wow. putting all their best practices. So they, uh, the article talks about two interesting things that they would like to see more often uh, to convey um, uh, the concept of DFM. One is the digital twin. So the concept of the digital twin is fairly simple, is I have got an idea, I'm representing my idea and concept uh, digitally. So anytime you're going to create a CAD model of it, you've got, for the most part, the foundation of a digital twin. Now, the extension of that nowadays is including kinematics, including motion, including the physical elements of that uh, physical world in the in this model, uh, in this 3D model space. So that they talk about... Um, uh, as the quote, with the digital twin, we duplicate everything in the virtual world. Um, let's see. We can design in the virtual world, manufacture in the virtual world, and then even simulate aspects in the virtual world. So as they're designing, I think the big takeaway here is simulating the manufacturing process as part of the design process. Instead of it being, um, you know, I design something, then manufacturing does something, and then that iteration occurs over a longer time, it's compressing those iteration cycles so it's almost uh, you know, back and forth quicker. Uh, so the early design phase, being able to simulate all in my complete manufacturing process that includes component design, assembly, manufacture, and, you know, I would say package and shipping, but in some cases that is important also. So I think that's pretty important is being able to simulate the lifecycle of manufacturing early in the design process. Uh, and the next thing they talk about are future trends and they throw out the buzzword of generative design. Oh, yeah, which... I'm okay with I mean the concept of generative design of being able to iterate quickly on the design phase. Yeah. The I think the big takeaway here is including manufacturing information as part of the generative process. Yes. So I'm iterating to include my pressures and temperatures, my loads, forces to either minimize weight or maximize a certain feature. But now I also have to include constraints from manufacturing world mm-hmm. in that generative process. Yes. And is I think generative
1: the, design, the current state of generative design is it only applies to like additive manufacturing and that's and the reason for that is only additive manufacturing can physically produce these generative designs
0: for the most part the stuff that we've seen there's been a tight coupling of generative and additive okay but i think there i think we are missing the boat a little bit in terms of incorporating uh designs and features that can be subtractively Mm -hmm. manufactured i think there we jump quickly from i want to do this quick It's new doohickey into growing the part. Like, sure, you can additively design it, but did you take a second to say, can I subtractively manufacture it also? Um, so that, that was a cool article and they hit us on a couple of key points and they interviewed a bunch of people from, uh, Autodesk and, uh, some of open mind and a couple of other people. Uh, what was your article about? Man, Steve? they're a
1: great publication. Those Canadians. <laughs> um, my article was, uh, top six business takeaways from robo business, 2019 robo business. And, you know, I love articles like this because I, first off, I didn't know this conference robo business, 2019 or any robo business for that matter. (laughs) Didn't know it was a thing. Yep. And I love articles like this because I appreciate the, to the point summary slash highlight of an event. I couldn't attend or didn't attend. Yeah. Um, and I also like it because, you know, this makes me feel old, but uh, I appreciate a good listicle. (laughs) Um, And so let's get into the top six business takeaways from this, uh, robo business, 2019. Do it. Um, first one, robots are creating jobs, not eliminating them. And you know, this, we, we, you know, in our industry, we've been a lot, everybody's been trying to drive this point home for like the past two, three years, if not more, um, at least two to three years is from what I know (laughs) uh, and I remember, you know, (laughs) and I've been here for four years, so that's not much. Um, but uh, in my opinion, and, and and I agree with this, obviously, um, but robots creating jobs, not eliminating them. And I think personally, and this is my opinion, if anybody's going to prove this, I think it's McDonald's. McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you been to a McDonald's lately?
0: Sure. I've been, uh, well, I go every Like week. one of the yeah. renovated ones. Yeah, so they have the touchscreen ordering They system. have the touch
1: screen yeah. And say what you want about the touchscreen. A lot of articles have been coming out about those. But <laughs> but that's a form of automation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you think about, like, McDonald's in, of your past experience of McDonald's and them getting orders, screwing up orders. Right. That's not anybody's fault. Like, well, I mean, it's maybe the person taking the order. It's their fault. Sure. But it's not the person in the kitchen's fault because they're right. just reading stuff off the screen. Yeah. The person putting the stuff on the screen, it's their fault. Right. They didn't hear you order properly. Right. So if you're the person putting your order on the screen two, you get two benefits. Number one you're getting your order perfectly, and yes. and the person who's putting it together is going to see your screen exactly right. what your order is. So there's going to be very little loss compared to having to go through a middleman yep. who's the the person taking your order in the past. Yep. Um, number two, you get to see all of the other options that you could have instead. True, and True. you get you know unlimited time. You're not wasting somebody's time right. now. You're wasting a computer's time, yep. which isn't time wasted at all because. Yeah. They don't have a life. I think um, you do
0: bring up two key things. At our, uh, my daughter's uh, sab school, that I was teaching the other day. We played operator, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the game for operator. Yeah. You, you have kids, uh, five or six kids. You start with a message and see what the message is at the end of the line. Of course, it's always different. Oh the yeah. Second kid in, the message is already screwed uh-huh. up, and it's a simple. It's like a three word phrase, and of course, the giggling. They're not paying attention. I mean, the the their automation that they have highlights that yeah, the getting rid of the, the chain dependency. And also it, it highlights another key issue where a lot of people forget is software automation. Right. Right. Everyone's very, very focused on uh, physical automation, but I think software automation but, is missing. but,
1: But right now we're only digressing on how great computers and machines can be. Yeah. Um, and we're missing the point on the value of humans still. Right. So you, it, it, go to McDonald's you now have these touch screens that you can get your order perfect on and order some things that you didn't know existed before sure. cuz now it's listed in front of you. Right. It's off the menu. the menu you can the menu screen like when you're sit, standing at the counter can only be so big. Right. If you can swipe through different screens, yeah. now you can see everything. Anyway, so now this frees up what pe- what people used to be cashiers. Now they have they don't, they don't have to be a cashier anymore. Right. So now The three people that would be behind the counter plus the one person who's like a runner slash manager making sure the three people behind the counter are doing right. Now those three people are freed up and now you have one of the three is standing by the touchscreens helping people use the touchscreens. Sure. That's incredible. Right. The second person is... Bringing your order to you once you finish your order, you've paid, you go sit down, you don't have to stand and wait, they will find you, they will bring you your food. That's the second person. And the third person that used to be uh, standing behind the counter and now has a better job is going around the restaurant. Um, seeing if anybody needs anything else. Right. You know, can right. we fix it? So now you don't have to stand and wait at the counter. Yeah. You can sit with, you know, your order and just wait for somebody to come by. So the pivot it's is... It's made jobs. It's made McDonald's, a fast food chain right. that used to be you, you stand, order, wait, go eat. Right. <laughs> um. Now it's order, sit down, and, and wait for appears. all of your service. Yeah. Now these human, It actually, like, a cheap fast food chain now feels just a little bit more like a restaurant. They can find some way to automate the cleaning of the bathrooms sure. then they're golden. But if again going back to the first takeaway of this yep. event, robots are creating jobs not eliminate. If anybody's going to prove that, I'm, I swear <laughs> I am I'm on board that it's going to be McDonald's to prove yep. this. All right, second bullet or second takeaway is um innovators need to take risks to gain market traction. So sure. innovators in robotics, yep. you know how they're going to make the biggest traction making their robotics cheaper sure if the robots are cheaper more people can buy them they will take a bigger market segment out of uh the, that side of the yeah. industry robotics it's, that's same for it's as easy though. as that sure that's my other that was my takeaway from imts 2018 you want cheaper robots. was i think robots are going to get cheaper before they're already super accurate they're right. already quick um and and they're already safe thanks to collaborative robots right. like they can't get much bit better the only way they're going to get better is, I think they're going to get cheaper next.
0: Sure.
1: Um, Takeaway number three: uh, the people who use robots should be more involved in their development. Absolutely. Yep. What kind of like CEO just like goes out and like buys a you know handful five robots and then takes them into the factory and be like implement these? You'd be no. Sur- the people you uh, okay? Maybe uh, I no, would man, be, surprised. be surprised. <laughs> but am, am I right or am I right? Yeah. Like tr- yeah. truth or fact? Like right. it would be better if the person who's going to use the robots has a say in what robot you buy.
0: Yeah, that's much more effective implementation that I've seen.
1: Um, the fourth takeaway: reaching potential. Let me make sure I got. I'm in the right order. Um, okay, yeah. Um, fourth takeaway: reaching potential customers is a challenge for engineers. Sure. Fifth takeaway: the <laughs> robotics industry needs universal interfaces. Absolutely. You've yeah. got uh, organizations that like Ross. Yep. and you've got our organization, MT Connect. Man, yep. they're really focusing on uh, robotics right now. Awesome. Um, sixth takeaway and final takeaway: the challenge of getting from five to five hundred robots. Yeah, that problem of scaling up is scaling common, up. Common, yeah. you know, you can you can get you can start with one robot. Yeah. and implement it on a test bed. Yep. See how useful it is. You can get the robot working perfect for you. Okay, let's get a robot in every cell. And you start with five cells. I think now I, get more robots, yeah, and the, the trouble is going let's automate all of the things. agreed. I think you the know.
0: the biggest takeaway from that is for me is the return on investment, understanding once I have five robots, how much money am I saving, or pivoting employees to do yeah. other things and pivoting then being,
1: employees to maintaining, yeah, and, and then and being fixing.
0: able to uh duplicate that same return on investment uh, as you scale up to. I wouldn't say 500, but, yeah, scaling up accordingly.
1: Yeah, that's just the takeaway from this I mean, if you got event. 500, you
0: just put them on the wall. You just put them on your desk. They're just hanging around like a jungle gym.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but this sounds like a great event. It may that's be good. worth attending one of these days, uh, maybe next year. Maybe. And maybe. And even better, this, this summary, this article highlight. Good. Um, this was really good. I feel like I attended that event.
0: I have some research I want to talk about. So I got two research papers. One is from NIST, uh, and it talks about force modeling of hybrid manufacturing. So the idea here was um, they have a uh, 17-4 is the material that they're using, uh, participant hardening seventeen four. 4 Good, strong material. Use that quite a bit. Um, the nice thing about it is you can um, work is, hard.
1: Is that a steel or is that yeah, an yeah, ink and stainless steel.
0: Okay. Yep. Uh, and what they're doing is, the, so the base material is wrought uh, 17-4, and they're growing uh, ribs, additively growing ribs okay. on it. Uh, and the idea is they wanted to see well, what are the influences to cutting forces of the material itself. So they've grown the part, and then what they want to see is if I anneal the part, does it affect um, like deflection? Does it affect the cutting forces? Okay, uh, fairly straightforward. You can see that on wrought material also, uh, but they were looking specifically on additive. Uh, so they did; they had okay. uh, one pair of annealed, and the other pair was maintained as as produced state. So they grew the rib, uh, say vertically. Uh, they took one off, and they annealed it. Uh, do you know what annealing is, Steve?
1: Man, I've heard it so many times, and I've read it before, but give me the best, like, layman's description, sure. a, an up-to-speed definition, if you would. Sure. The, so the Ben
0: definition is uh, I put something <laughs> in the oven, so I'm raising the temperature to weaken the uh, strength of the—reduce uh, the strength of the uh, the steel. Oh, okay. Uh, so— It's more to either improve ductility or improve cutting ability. Okay. So, if in this case is 174, it's very strong and as-produced. So, if I kneel it, uh, I the theory is to avoid hard milling. I could, yeah, exactly to avoid hard hard milling. I could bend it easier, or I can cut it easier. So it's almost like
1: like one of the steps in like like tempering, like going to old-school blacksmithing swords. Like they they put the steel in the fire. Right. To get it soft and then Correct. they hammer it down. Correct. That's, the, the softening part is exactly. annealing?
0: Exactly. Okay. Uh, so they anneal a, a, a one piece of it and then they test it. So they have, uh, it's a pretty uh, robust uh, research paper. So they um, add a bunch of sensors to measure the cutting forces of a machine. And as they cut uh, the part, um, they wanted to see what the effect was of annealing for the additive part. And of course, they see that the, uh, the strongest effect was annealing other, uh, compared to other variations. Um, So the uh, as-machine part required more force to cut as opposed to the um, grown part that was annealed um, and it matches the um, prediction. So the key part was that they did a bunch of predictions to see what was the predicted force of the as-grown part versus the uh, annealed part. And they're using some uh, equations that they uh, developed in the process. And they were able to see some really good um, fit, uh, the power law fit. Uh, it was the um, predictive tool, predictive uh, equation mm-hmm. that they used. So uh, I think conceptually the main takeaway was that they predicted, that they had a tool to predict what the cutting force would be, mm-hmm. and it was pretty spot on. Okay.
1: So that was pretty good. What kind of tool was it? Like was, were they implementing like machine learning? or?
0: Something? No, no, no. It was just uh, an equation. Uh, Insert buzzword here.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> just was, uh, yeah, just, okay. Just an algorithm. Yeah, just an equation that they used. I love uh, NIST. The last paper awesome. I wanted
0: to talk about was Electroerosion Edge Honing of Cutting Tools. Uh, so this is another research carried out from Canada, McMaster uh, mm-hmm. University. Uh, so what they're doing is using a sync EDM to define the cutting edge of the uh, of a tool. Uh, so in the paper, they talk about the value of the cutting edge. Uh, and to be clear, let's uh, talk about some actual numbers. So um, let's, so on an insert, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, a uh, insert for uh, turning. Uh, they have uh, the edge itself, the the roundness of the edge. Um, they're basically being a, they want to be able to control that uh, more. Okay. So you can grind an edge, you can uh, paw, you know um, uh, blast an edge. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to achieve that edge. What they're proposing to do is create a counter, create a countersink, and using uh, EDM to actually drop the. Um, the cutting edge into that countersink. Okay. And then as it's discharging, it takes the form of that countersink. Oh. Uh, the reason for that is, you know, they're talking pretty small edges. So the the car inserts that they're talking about are from basically three-tenths three, three tenths of an inch, and they want to increase it to a controlled of basically one thousand one thousandths of an inch. So very, very small cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to control that. So what they've seen is, being able to control it closer to that 1,000th of edge as opposed to sharper, Mm -hmm. you actually get better tool life. So there's a bunch of research that was done before this to say, if I can control this edge and get it to a a number that I want, I can basically uh, double the life of the insert. Wow. Um, So what they've done is uh, they have a couple of edge preps that they did. But the key takeaway is they're using uh, EDM and they're using the base of the EDM, not a, a wire EDM, it's a sync EDM. So they have a contour in the base of it. And as they're bringing the insert into it, uh, the discharging occurs on different surfaces as it's eroding. And they found that they're able to achieve a very, very accurate part with minimal erosion on the countersink itself. Okay. Uh, so it's very interesting that uh, they had this process and it's uh, research done from uh, a couple of years ago. Did so they change
1: cool. up the equation with respect to the purpose of the individual cutting tool? No, so, so like if the cutting tool one. is for, made to cut... Aluminum, yeah. or yeah. Inconel, or you know, a, a steel. Yeah, so that, they can modify that exactly. That so is a variable. Yeah, they can modify. Cool. The key thing is it, it's a, it's a constant
0: uh, curvature or the uh, the constant form. Uh, so they can vary that form to meet. So if you want a larger radius or smaller, you mm-hmm. can vary that accordingly. But the takeaway, the application here was very um, for machining hard uh, materials. Or very, very hard uh, inserts. Yeah. Um, What they would like to do in the future state is explore what it's like to do um, uh, uh, diamond, uh, polycrystalline diamond uh, inserts. Uh, So it's electrically non-conductive phase. So they have issues, of course, transmitting. Is that a coating or is that the full material? material. That's the the,
1: Wow. So
0: I thought it was really fascinating. So to get that super critical edge, EDM, sinking EDM. That's wild. Cool. Man, we got heavy real quick. To research. Serious research.
1: research. All right. Yeah, awesome. That was a great episode, Steve. I think how so. How do you feel about it? I feel really good about that content. How can we? Uh, how, how can people get to us if they need some feedback or if they want some more information on these?
0: Yeah, good question, Steve. So they can follow me on LinkedIn. Look for Benjamin Moses. I'll put a link in the show notes too. How about you, Steve? How can people follow you?
1: They can follow all my activities and shenanigans on the testbed at SwarfySteve.blogspot.com. Sounds like a headache, but we'll put that in the description as well. But
0: awesome, Steve. Have a good see good my day. blog. See you, everybody. <laughs> Bye.